evil money. Okay. It took evil money to come in here and do this. Evil money? Is that all it took, Nina Turner? Oh, yeah. But. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. We'll talk. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, hello Ohio, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me, maybe not you, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, hey, Desi Doyen. <laughs> hey. It was a uh, it was special election day on Tuesday. Yes, it was. Yes, it's election time again. It never uh, ends, really, but yes, yeah, we're back in again. We are, uh, at least for the special elections in what used to be the swing state of Ohio. And maybe, who knows, it could be someday again. There were two different U.S. House special elections of note on Tuesday, one in a very so-called red district. So the winner of Tuesday's Republican primary will most likely go on to take that seat in the U.S. House, while the other was in a very so-called blue district, where the winner of that highly contested Democratic primary will almost certainly become its next representative in Congress. Let's start on the red district first, where uh, disgraced two-time impeached former President Donald Trump worked very hard to continue his efforts at draining the swamp by pushing hard for a longtime coal lobbyist to become a U.S. House member. That's pretty cool, eh? Uh, Of course he did. Mike Carey, a relatively unknown coal lobbyist endorsed by Trump, won the crowded Republican primary Tuesday in the special election for Ohio's 15th congressional district, making him the heavy favorite now to succeed former GOP rep Steve Stivers this November. Carey appears to have won in a rout uh, atop the 11-candidate field. Kerry got 37% of the vote as of Wednesday morning. The nearest other candidates uh, barely topped 13%. So this wasn't even close, according to the reported still unverified numbers. Kerry's win, as Roll Call describes it, came as vindication 
for Donald Trump after last week in Texas, where Republican Jake Elzey defeated the candidate that Trump had backed there in a Texas special election, raising questions about the former president's ability to recognize winning candidates and the power of his endorsement in the 2022 midterms. It didn't work in Texas. It does appear to have worked on Tuesday in Ohio. After that stinging loss in the Lone Star State for Trump last week, his Make America Great, uh, his Make America Great Again PAC immediately spent almost half a million dollars to support this coal lobbyist in Ohio, including three hundred and forty eight thousand dollars worth of advertising that it bought the day of Wright's loss in Texas, according to CNBC. Kerry. Uh, who won on Tuesday in Ohio as a friend of Corey Lewandowski. That's Trump's former campaign manager. He built himself as a, quote, conservative outsider, setting himself apart in a field that included an assortment of wealthy and well-connected political operatives, several of whom had high-profile backers of their own. Why are you laughing? A coal lobbyist considering himself a conservative outsider. outsider. Yeah, I yeah. guess that works yeah. with some of those folks. Yeah, who buy any of that crap. Yeah. Uh, in the campaign, uh, Kerry left no question about the one connection, however, that truly mattered. He int introduced himself with a video on his campaign website that started with the declaration, Mike Kerry, endorsed by Donald Trump, <laughs> pledging to uh, join Trump's most fervent backers on the Hill. Kerry told uh, Spectrum News last month, quote, my voting record is going to look a lot more like Ohio GOP rep Jim Jordan's then it's going to look like Stivers, whose vacated seat he would be filling. So he's uh, living up to both Trump and Jim Jordan. Good luck, Ohio. Steve Stivers is the uh, a former chair of the National Republican Congressional Committee. He sometimes worked with Democrats. Uh, he resigned in May to take a job with the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. But Kerry is a lobbyist for American Consolidated Natural Resources, a lobbying group for the dying coal industry, and he chairs the Ohio Coal Association because, you know, draining the swamp. In the uh, Democratic primary uh, in that race, State Rep. Allison Russo trounced retired U.S. Army Colonel Greg Betts with more than 84 percent of the vote when the AP called the race on Tuesday night, shortly after polls closed. Nonetheless, uh, Republican coal lobbyist Kerry will be the heavy favorite against uh, Russo in a district that backed Donald Trump by 14 points last year and backed uh, the I guess we can call him more moderate Congressman Steve Stivers by 27 points last fall. The uh, general election in that race uh, and also uh, the U.S. House special election uh, in uh, Ohio's very blue 11th congressional district will be on November 2nd. So uh, the fight to fill the seat in the 11th district is the seat of former Ohio congresswoman turned Joe Biden's housing and urban development secretary, Marsha Fudge. And that fight got ugly between progressives and establishment Democrats in recent days. Cuyahoga County Council member Chantel Brown pulled out a victory for the Democratic establishment on Tuesday in Cleveland in the 11th district. Brown's primary win by a reported 50 to 44 and a half percent. 
over progressive Nina Turner handed another blow to a liberal wing that has been challenging the Democratic old guard with a more confrontation, confrontational style, at least as AP reports it today. Turner, a leading national voice for Bernie Sanders and for his presidential campaigns, was for many months seen as the frontrunner in the crowded field for the nomination. She was the best known and the most visible among 13 Democrats who were running in the fiercely fought primary, and she was also the choice of Sanders, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and other. Brown, on the other hand, was a centrist backed by Hillary Clinton. Uh, also, influential House Majority Whip and, frankly, kingmaker of late Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, as well as the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, as well as leading unions and many local leaders. Brown prevailed after a surge in national attention and funding to her campaign in the weeks leading up to the election. In the heavily Democratic 11th district, Brown is now strongly favored in the November 2 general over Laverne Gore, a business owner and community activist who easily won the Republican nomination. But after months of appearing at a significant disadvantage, Brown was able to claim victory on Tuesday night. Turner conceded, tweeting that her campaign, quote, couldn't overcome the influence of dark money. For months, Turner seemed to be cruising with little in the way of interference, according to Cleveland.com. Nevertheless, the feeling on the ground at the beginning of July was that the race was close and nearly $2 million of outside money, largely from the Israel lobby, was used to begin attacking Nina Turner in television ads for her past criticisms of the Democratic Party and of President Joe Biden. Around that time, the Congressional Black Caucus, led by Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, a Columbus, Ohio Democrat, well, they also decided to get involved in the race, which is atypical for one of the oldest congressional caucuses in the country, particularly in a race between two leading African-American candidates. The decision largely came about because of a June live stream with Turner featuring rapper and activist Michael Render. He's known uh, by a stage name Killer Mike. Uh, he criticized the influential Jim Clyburn, and Turner seemed to agree with him, after which the Congressional Black Caucus joined in the blitz against Turner. During the final weekend of campaigning, Clyburn, Beatty, and other members had stumped on Brown's behalf in the Buckeye State, calling into question her loyalty to the party. Turney, Turner, meanwhile tried an endgame approach of bringing in her own national supporters. That included uh, Congresswoman AOC, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, author and activist Colonel uh, Cornell West, and, of course, Bernie Sanders. Large crowds gathered for the events, but it apparently did not translate to votes for Nina Turner. And, in fact, as Cleveland.com posits here, it may have backfired, given Sanders's lukewarm support in this particular district. In her concession speech, Turner said she would continue her activist work. She laid the blame at the big money spent against her for her defeat. She said, I'm going to work hard to ensure that something like this does not happen to another progressive candidate again. She said, we didn't lose this race. Evil money 
manipulated and maligned this election. Joining us now to discuss this race and even what the uh, uh, the GOP is looking like right now at the same time in preparation of the 2024 presidential election, because really that's what 2022 is about at this point, at least it seems to be for them, is a man who knows plenty about progressives and, by the way, evil money manipulation in elections. Longtime journalist and progressive champion John Nichols is Washington uh, correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive, and in these times he's associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, who I believe the last time we spoke with him on air, if I'm not mistaken, was the day after the 2020 presidential election, which is apparently still going on in the brainwashed and deluded minds of many in MAGA world. Oh, Mr. Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. I've got a lot to talk to you about today. I look forward to talking to you, my friend. I'm glad to be with you. John, I, I, I know you have known Nina Turner for many years. A recent article you uh, you did on her and this race notes that your uh, uh, relationship goes back about 10 years, well before she became an outspoken champion of Bernie Sanders even, uh, who you have also covered closely over the years. So what happened in Cleveland on Tuesday where Turner had been leading the pack for a number of months? Well, I think that the race was always going to be closer than people, than I think some folks imagined early on. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an important thing to understand. Uh, Cleveland has a distinct political culture. And remember, this district isn't just Cleveland. It's also Akron mm-hmm. and a you know, number of communities in between. Uh, but there, are, there is distinct political culture up there in northeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chantel Brown came out of a political organization, a political community that that had strength on the ground, that always had strength on the ground. And she wasn't as well known, so of course polls initially suggested uh, that Nina Turner was way ahead. And I don't think there's any doubt that Turner was ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, Turner had endorsements from uh, some important people on the ground. There's a lot of talk about the national endorsements. Hillary right. Clinton for Chantel Brown, Bernie Sanders for uh, Nina Turner, and then Adding mm-hmm. in all these other names, but it's important to look at you know who who was back at who from Cleveland from mm-hmm. Akron, mm. and uh, the mayor of Cleveland was back in Nina Turner. The uh, Daily Paper in Cleveland was back in Nina Turner, so she had significant support. Um, but uh, the uh, Democratic organization in Cleveland, especially, is real. It's got real strength, and you know it's. And in a November election, people around the country get very, very excited about that, very happy that, that they turn out the votes if they want a Democratic win. In a primary, though, that organization is also able to turn out votes and to make things happen. And so I, I guess the bottom line I would say is I think it was always a close race, mm-hmm. always going to be a closer race. And then I do think that there was a tremendous amount of uh, pressure brought on that race that focused a lot of attention on things that Nina Turner had said in the past about uh, Joe Biden, about uh, some other Democrats, and she was portrayed as being somebody who wouldn't be loyal enough to the Democratic Party, uh, to the Democratic organization. And I think that got traction. 
And is is that a fair criticism? Your your colleague at the Nation, uh, Joan Wall, she argues today that there's going to be a lot of loaded national narratives spun uh-huh. about the Ohio 11 special election. Mainly, we'll hear that the race was the establishment versus the Bernie Sanders insurgency, and the that the establishment won here. Uh, but then she says it's much more complicated than that. And uh, as as you also note, John Nichols, uh, you know she attacked Joe Biden. I mean, uh, you know, she compared voting to him to eating excrement. Nina Turner, yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, when you attack the party in that way, can you be surprised when the party actually turns against you? And I would say that is different from what we've seen from other progressives like AOC, who has, you know, gone after the establishment, but not in quite an acerbic way, as I think Nina Turner did. Yeah, look, I, I think that there were, what happened in this campaign was that they took um, a couple of statements that Nina Turner had made in the past mm-hmm. and turned those into, effectively, as we, if we use a, a modern uh, language here, into memes. They, they became something really uh, powerful, and, and uh, the ads came back to that again and again and again, mm-hmm. and they drove home this image of Nina Turner as a uh, somebody who was radically at odds with the Democratic Party. Now, the fact of the matter is that Nina Turner um, was a Democratic elected official, mm-hmm. was a Democratic nominee for Secretary of State of Ohio, mm-hmm. um, backed a lot of Democrats, continued to back a lot of Democrats, and and I think that that you know. You can argue, and I think it's legitimate to argue, that strategically the Turner campaign should have been more aware of the damage that that might do if a huge amount of money came mm-hmm. in and was very, very uh, focused on some of those lines which you've referenced, um, that that might get traction. And I, I think that strategically there was probably some steps that should have been taken to counter that. You know, to, to by, drive home by the turn by the Turner yeah. campaign itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And to and to you know communicate about it, to talk about it, uh, and and I think this is something that's that's going to be a complexity not just in this race but in races going forward. Uh, this question of you know how loyal are you to the party? Mm-hmm. And uh, if I just back off for one, you know, for a moment and say this is not new, right? Mm-hmm. This is something we have seen a lot over the years um, politically. There are always battles for the soul. Of, of political parties. I wrote mm-hmm. a book about this within the Democratic Party. And it's fair to say that this goes back, you know, 75, 80 years, yep. this battle between progressives and centrists, mm-hmm. between those who want the party to be transformational and those who want the party to be uh, managerial. And uh, similarly, there have been such battles in the Republican Party over the years, uh, going back definitely to the days of Joe McCarthy and then into Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, a fight between the further right Mm -hmm. and moderates. Uh, So what played out in Cleveland, I I think the danger of looking at it is to say, oh, well, this tells us everything we need to know about the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. I don't think it necessarily does. I think this is a special election, relatively low turnout, and a lot of, uh, you know, focus on one personality in that race, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody who was well known, and uh, and it's. I think it's frustrating for a lot of progressives to look at that and say, "Hey, you know, uh, that was really an unfair. That that attack went went too far. It 
was it was too rough. And a lot of people have called it out. Uh, remember, my colleague Joan Walsh mm-hmm. uh, was a supporter of Hillary Clinton right. in 2016. You know, not necessarily somebody who you know would be seen as a, a Bernie Sanders you know champion or, or something of that she, nature. She seems to be saying, "Don't take too much from this. Don't take the idea that uh, Medicare for all uh, is dead, uh, even though we're going to see Republicans and centrist Democrats making that claim." But is the progressive movement on the outs electorally, even as they seem to be, uh, John uh, Nichols, having some pretty huge successes on Capitol Hill, including Cory Bush's success uh, with with AOC on Tuesday at forcing the Biden administration to extend the eviction moratorium on the infrastructure uh, bill and so forth? Is is what we are hearing now uh, just more of the same, the continual back and forth between the progressives and the establishment that's been going on for really as you say decades i absolutely think it is in fact i don't think there's any question of that um the look uh since alexandra ocasio-cortez beat joe crowley Mm -hmm. in june of 2018 uh i have seen this progressive surge written off again and again and again in fact (laughs) i'll even you know we could go back further and talk about the sanders campaign uh you know but let's just take this, this kind of current surge as we look at uh, the House of Representatives. It, literally, AOC won, and then within days you had people saying, oh, well, that was a one-off, Crowley mm-hmm. didn't pay enough attention, blah, 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 you know, the whole, the whole line of dismissal mm-hmm. of it. And then uh, that same year, you know, in later primaries, you saw the victories by Rashida Tlaib mm-hmm. and by Ilhan Omar and by a whole bunch of legislative candidates mm-hmm. in New York State, uh, which was very, very transformational, but also places all over the country. A lot of the people who had come out of the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, people who were associated often with Democratic Socialists of America and other progressive groupings, came in, and they won a lot of races. Mm-hmm. And so then suddenly people are like, oh, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's something here. And then um, you had people saying, oh, yeah, but look, Cori Bush, she lost her primary when she took on Lacey Clay. 2018. Then Cori Bush comes back in 2020, yep. and she wins. Yeah, and so and the same with if you look at the Markey Kennedy race in Massachusetts mm-hmm. again, you know that was a big win for the progressives. Yeah, uh, but then they had other races that weren't. And I guess what I'm telling you is this is politics. Right. Exactly. No, exactly. This is politics. And frankly, it is politics when you go out and you attack a, 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 a party and, of course, its presidential nominee and compare it to terrible things. Yeah, you know. It's going to come back. Also, you know, to be fair, she had entertained the idea of, of perhaps becoming Jill Stein's uh, Green Party vice presidential nominee. So, man, you know, listen. You pay a price for these things. This is politics. It ain't beanbag, as they say. John, let me ask you, I want to hit uh, two quick points here, and then uh, we'll take a quick break and come back and ask you about, uh, oh, other fun things like uh, death by DeSantis. Uh, but uh, it, it, it is um, a troubling that Cleveland.com reports that Chantel Brown, she was chair of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party, Uh, which has reportedly been in some disarray in recent years. Apparently, she accepted Republican money into this divisive special election. What what should we make of that? I mean, it sure seems like Republicans are able to control races like this in Democratic areas uh, in that way, where they know that, you know, it's going to be uh, a Democrat is going to hold that seat. They know they're not going to win in the general. So... 
are Republicans picking Democratic uh, candidates here, and do Democrats do anything like that? Well, I don't think it's quite, you know, I don't think that's, it's fully that. Um, but I do think people who donated a lot to Republican campaigns mm-hmm. uh, donated to some of these PACs that came in here, mm-hmm. and even, you know, there was certainly that it's not just uh, Cleveland.com. I think The Intercept did some very detailed reporting on this as well. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's clear evidence that a lot of Republicans thought, okay, let's, you know, Here's a place we can we can have an impact, yeah. and uh, I I've, I know this isn't news to you, Brad. Uh, big money, yeah, billionaires, corporations, people with interests, special interests uh, of all sorts of different kinds, have weighed in on races to try and influence the process mm-hmm. for a very very long time, and and it can often be very sophisticated. Remember, one of the interesting things about uh, when uh, big money comes in, whether mm-hmm. it comes from individual donations or for bundled donations or for encouraging folks who have money to donate to particular candidates, all the different models that it works in. Um, there's People often think, well, why are they interested in that race? You know, what, what's, what is significant about that race? Well, I often I always try to tell people it's often not that race. It's not that that's what they're interested in. What they're really interested in is kind of controlling the process itself. Right and making it clear that going too far, right, being too progressive, taking too strong a stand uh-huh. on a corporate taxation issue, or going after pharmaceutical companies or whatever, um, that that's a dangerous thing. Maybe you shouldn't go that far, right? And there is a desire to kind of temper or narrow the process, narrow the discourse, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that that's something that you do see in in races all over the country. And yes, I do think that uh, you see it more often with conservative donors, wealthy donors who are a little bit more on the right, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, they, they've got a lot of money, yep. right? You know, yeah. just, and they have an interest in influencing the process so that they don't have to pay high taxes. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's frustrating because yeah. we just don't see that same thing going in the other direction. Not as much. I mean, yes, there is some of that. But, I mean, uh, you know, the Republican infrastructure, you call it uh, conservative, I call it Republican. Oh, yeah, I, I would agree with the use of the term Republican. I, I mean, just seems to control so much of what goes on in our electoral politics and our politics, and there just does not seem to be the answer uh, to that from uh, from Democrats, from uh, progressives. i got to get to a break here, John, but let me, you know, I also note uh, with sort of surprise and sadness, uh, Cleveland.com reports, quote, turnout for the special election was higher than expected in Cuyahoga County at around 16.8%. Exceeding Cuyahoga County Board of Elections uh, elect- Executive Director's expectation of around 14%. 16% is high turnout? Just. You know, can we, can I, I know you got to go to a yeah, break. Yeah. If I can just take one second on that. Yeah, please. This is one of the biggest areas of what I see as media malpractice. Um, the suggestion that, you know, oh, wow, you know, it's, it's to be expected that special elections will only draw. You know, one in six voters, yeah. or um, uh, you know, or even that it's normal to have a, you know a turnout of around fifty or a little over fifty percent in the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is absurd. Other countries around the world have dramatically higher turnout, yeah. and if they were looking at fifteen, sixteen percent turnout, they would be saying, "There's you know, we have a fundamental problem here. Yeah. This is 
not a functioning democracy if you don't have you know a majority of the people coming out, a substantial majority of the people coming out, mm-hmm. making choices. Yeah. And I'm not trying to beat up on Cleveland here, because the fact of the matter is, this is a national pattern. It is, and it is just pathetic. And this is, uh, you know, pathetic for Democrats, frankly, of any stripe, establishment, progressive, to only have a 16% turnout. 13% in Cleveland voted uh, on Tuesday. It's pathetic. We got to do something about it. Yeah. And speaking of pathetic here, I do have to take a break, but I want to come back to uh, a bit of a change of topics, sort of, to uh, focus on some pathetic presidential politics, including uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who you have uh, also been recently writing about at The Nation. Uh, And if time allows, the push for what I see as a landmark infrastructure initiative by Democrats that if they can pull it off, uh, frankly, may make all the difference in 2022 and 2024. John Nichols of The Nation is with us on the broadcast. He'll, he'll stick around for another quick segment. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As we noted on yesterday's Bradcast, the states of Florida and Louisiana were at or near their highest hospitalization numbers of the entire coronavirus pandemic on Monday, driven by the still-spreading Delta variant, as one doctor in Louisiana warned of the darkest days yet. More than 10,000 patients were hospitalized in Florida as of Sunday, Surpassing that state's record as Democratic governors from Louisiana to California to New York to New Jersey were all busy clamping down on new restrictions to stop the spread. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, has taken the opposite stance. Amid all of this, he issued an executive order last week, just last week, barring schools from requiring face covering, saying parents should make that decision for their own children. District officials in Broward and Gadsden counties facing a threat by DeSantis to withhold state funds said on Monday that they were dropping mask mandates this fall, according to the News Service of Florida. Florida has one of the worst outbreaks in the nation, and about one quarter of the country's hospitalized COVID patients are in the Sunshine State, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. As my guest today, John Nichols, writes at The Nation this week, Florida reported a jaw-dropping 21,683 new COVID cases on Saturday, the highest single-day total since the pandemic began. The new figure is 10% higher than the previous worst day back in January at the peak of the winter's uh, devastating surge. On Sunday, the data was even more chilling. Florida broke the previous one-day record for hospitalizations, Less than 50 percent of Floridians, meanwhile, are fully inoculated and some regions of the state are seeing high levels of vaccine hesitancy, along with outright rejection of public health mandates. 
On Monday, notes Nichols headlines announced that Florida was leading the nation in per capita COVID-19 hospitalizations. Uh, The AP reports that hospitals around the state were having to put emergency room visitors in beds in the hallways uh, and others document a noticeable drop in the age of patients in certain hospitals. This is a crisis, writes John. Yet Florida's Republican Governor DeSantis is refusing to act to protect the health and safety of Floridians. Over the weekend, the Orlando Sentinel revealed that DeSantis has stopped traveling around the state to push for people to get vaccinated. The governor is also aggressively opposing mask mandates and other public health interventions. U.S. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a Democrat from South Florida, says Floridians are going through, quote, death by DeSantis. DeSantis, as you've probably heard, is hoping to be the next Republican nominee for president of the United States, at least if Donald Trump doesn't run. If he does run, he's hoping to be his vice presidential nominee. And next year, DeSantis is running himself for governor for re-election. So what is this all about? And is passing laws to ban local mask and vaccine mandates what is now required to become popular in the death cult known as the Republican Party? My guest, the great progressive journalist John Nichols, seems to be arguing as much in his piece at The Nation this week. Thanks for sticking around, John. Honored to be with you. Uh, in, In your article, you detail a whole bunch of GOP presidential hopefuls Uh, who are all now falling over themselves to be more anti-science than the other. Is this this what it's come to in the Republican Party? And by the way, is it a winning strategy at this point as their own voters are the ones who are literally getting killed here at much higher rates than those in in blue states and counties around the country? Well, two very distinct questions. Uh, So let's take them uh, one at a time. Mm -hmm. First off, is this becoming... uh, the, the required approach within the Republican Party? Answer, yes. I mean, it, I don't think that's debatable. Uh, it, going back to the um, uh, CPAC conference in February, I believe, mm-hmm. the, the, literally the, the potential candidates were getting up, you know, trying to outdo one another uh, on how, you know, opposed they were to mask mandates and to, mm-hmm. you know, social distancing and to doing anything uh, to have the government step in to try and you know, protect people in the time of a global pandemic. Uh, the winner at the convention, or at, the, at CPEC, mm-hmm. was uh, Christy Nome, the governor from South Dakota. I mean, there was no question that uh, coming is a, not an overly well-known potential contender. You mean uh, by winner, you mean uh, the, the loser, the one who was <laughs> most anti-science, I guess. Well, not, not a winner in my eyes, right. <laughs> but a winner of a lot of, someone who gained a lot of traction okay. because of her speech. Right. Uh, and she was just, you know, just line after line about, oh, they, they tried to make me, you know, have people put on masks, and I said no. You know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and she's and, got one of the worst rates in the country in her state well, uh, over the course of the pandemic as far as people dying. At some points, they led the world. Yeah, yeah. Literally. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of proportionally as bad as you could possibly get. Right. Getting compared to, you know, the, the most devastated places on the planet. Yeah, so it kind of is, uh, when I call it a death cult, and, you know, the most popular uh, uh, woman at CPAC is the one who killed the most of her own residents, I don't think it's an exaggeration to, to call it a death cult at this point. Well, people, you're not the first one to use that. Yeah. Here. 
Um, And, you know, what I can tell you is that it's become a really intense circumstance uh, within within the party where, um, you know, you have... You do have some folks who've stepped up, especially recently, um, as the Delta variant began to take hold, and people started to get genuinely concerned about it, um, saying, uh, well, boy, you know, maybe we should get vaccinated. <laughs> you know, Sean Hannity and mm-hmm. people like that. Um, but, uh, but there is still this, this clear reality that people who are positioning to be 2024 candidates are making uh, central to their positioning a message that they have resisted Mandates, and in fact, that they have not just resisted, but aggressively sought to um, strike them down, and that's what we've seen uh, with DeSantis in Florida. Uh, DeSantis has, uh, you know, been very aggressive in going after school districts that say, you know what, I think we're going to have a mask mandate, or you know what, I think we're going to do um, some sort of program that tries to uh, protect people in this way or mm-hmm. that way, uh, and and. It's become a really intense circumstance where local elected officials uh, have been saying, you know, we've got a real problem here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so it's, it's real what's going on there. And, and DeSantis has been flying off to appear at the American Legislative Exchange Council, at other events in other places, um, you know, trying to, uh, you know, pump himself up, literally giving speeches about how he's standing strong against the mandates and things like that. So, um, we do see this as a part of it. Now, let's get to that, that second part of the question you had, which is a really important part of the question. And that is, does this work? Is this a winning strategy? And the answer to your question is, there's some evidence we're getting that it isn't. That it is, in fact, a really um, destructive approach, mm-hmm. and one that, that does do harm politically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we know that not from my speculation or doing punditry, but we have a new poll out by a, a good polling group, uh, St. Pete's Poll, uh, in the St. Petersburg area, mm-hmm. statewide poll, that shows that unlike a few months ago, the Democrats who are uh, positioning to run against DeSantis are suddenly either ahead of him or essentially tied with him. Mm. Uh, these are Charlie Chris, the former governor and mm-hmm. congressman, uh, and uh, this is for governor next year for the governor's race. Yes, right. yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Race. right. And um, and then also uh, Nikki Freed, who is the state agriculture commissioner, right, and who's done a really remarkable thing there, where she has uh, actually gone out of her way to um, communicate the figures, the data. She's she's cutting videos every day mm-hmm. uh, on you know how bad the circumstance is, how difficult. You know things are, and so it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating uh, measure that we're getting. Now, this is obviously this is an election year. There's still time ahead, and polls don't tell us everything. But we are getting an indication, at least some evidence, that um, the that DeSantis's approach here has harmed him politically. Harmed um, has harmed on the him. ground. Yeah, in in uh, Florida. And especially notable uh, in this recent polling that independents who in Florida have trended a little bit toward the Republicans really were shifting over. Good. Um, I mean, there is a lot of uh, crap 
up with which uh, Floridians will clearly put. However, I, you know, maybe laws that uh, ban the idea that they can protect themselves and telling companies that they may not require vaccination for their customers or their employees. I mean, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing. I mean, you know, what happens, of course, is tragic and people end up dying. But I look at this, and John Nichols, this is something that you and I know have, have talked about before. One of the reasons I'm, I get so irritated when we call Republicans conservatives, you know, they pretend, oh, local, small government knows best, but here you got the governor of this big state of Florida telling counties and school districts that they cannot decide what is best for their residents and for their students. You know, the idea of, oh, we believe in freedom. Well, if companies want to have the freedom of saying that everyone must be vaccinated to get on our cruise ship, Ron DeSantis, not conservative, apparently, because he's against freedom. I, I mean, everything is just turned on its head, John. Well, in fact, um, it's not just on this issue of, you know, life and death protections against a pandemic. Yeah. It's also on things like critical race theory, where DeSantis has threatened school boards around the state and and threatened teachers. um, Literally said he's going to go in and campaign against Republicans Uh on school boards if they, you know, cross some line that he has imagined Uh as regards uh, teaching about slavery and segregation and, and, you know, the Mm -hmm. history of this country. Uh, And so what we end up with is a situation where uh, DeSantis has kind of fully taken in this authoritarian right-wing approach, right? And whether we call it conservative, whether we call it Republican, whatever term we use uh, for it now, the fact of the matter is that there's an authoritarianism here. There's a, a, a sense that he's in power and he can what he wants and that is a really i think it is a troubling thing it's it's troubling in the broad sense in the overall Mm -hmm. conception but it's deeply troubling when you get to these public health issues yeah and because that's life and death it it is and uh and yet this seems to be the model he seems to be the uh you know the donald trump without the baggage and yeah at the, supposedly, we'll see how much baggage you might have. Uh, but yeah, going out and, and you know, uh, passing laws that uh, say what teachers cannot teach in schools in one breath and in the next breath uh, talking about the, uh, you know, how freedom of speech is so important and they're shutting out us conservatives. Uh, it's kind of appalling. Uh, John, before we go, uh, I want to hit this because it seems to me uh, infrastructure, this, you know, if these two major infrastructure bills, the $1 trillion bipartisan bill and the $3.5 trillion Democrats-only bill uh, that can be passed with just a minority vote in the Senate, in theory, if these can make their way through the minefields to become law, I don't know if people understand, and maybe I'm just wrong, but it seems to me that this would be one of the greatest achievements for any U.S. president in decades, of course, a great achievement for the country, uh, most importantly, if it happens. But is that a fair assessment? Is this as big a deal as I feel that it is, again, if it all actually uh, comes to pass? I think it's a very big deal. Uh, And I think it's a big deal on a couple of levels that are really important. Uh, First off, we have real needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and you don't have time, and, 
and I don't think it's necessary to go over those needs. They're well established. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody from civil engineers to experts in broadband to experts in caregiving to, you know, you kind of run through the list. We have physical infrastructure needs. We have human infrastructure needs. We have digital infrastructure needs. Uh, and, uh, and there's so much that has to be done. Uh, but there's also something else. And I did a, a, got a profile of Bernie Sanders coming out in the nation in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I looked at there, we, we talked a lot about, you know, why he is so committed, why he's, you know, really thrown in so deeply with this work as, as chair of the Budget Committee. Of course, it's his job, and he acknowledges that. But there's a real passion there. And one of the things he talked about is this genuine concern about whether people are going to believe that government can do things. And mm-hmm. if you don't believe that Democrats in power and progressives in power can make government do things, big things that help you, that make your life better, then you run a situation, you run a, a, a circumstance, you have the fear mm-hmm. that um, the other side will come along and say, well, we can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, that Donald Trump and his authoritarian right-wingers yep. will come along and say, we'll show you how to get this done. And that's, that is a scary prospect. So it isn't just the actual things that need to be done. It is also um, you know, something, you know, kind of a, a much deeper test of whether government in times like these can improve the lives of people who are hurting mm-hmm. as a result of a pandemic, as a result of the massive unemployment that extended from it now, not as bad, but still real in some areas, as a result of all the challenges that we have that extend beyond just the pandemic moment to, you know, a, a cry for racial justice that is, you know, centuries unmet, uh, a you know, climate crisis that is immediate and overwhelming. You know, so many things that need to be done. Uh, people know these things need to be done. Yep. And the question is, will government do it? And that's, I think, the, that's where the infrastructure bill especially comes in. And I've heard from uh, some progressives who point out, also actually correctly, that there needs to be more money, that uh, that $4 trillion, if this passes, is actually not enough, not enough to uh, to do what needs to be done for our climate crisis. And I think they are correct. But you got to start somewhere. And I know you've been, as you mentioned, you've got an article coming out on, on Bernie Sanders. You've been talking to him. He's the head of the budget committee in the U.S. Senate. He's the one who struck this uh, this deal for this $3.5 trillion framework for this uh, Democrats-only bill. Is he still uh, is he still bullish on this? Does he feel good about this uh, 3.5 deal, at least where it stands as of now? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, it would never uh, speak for him directly, you know, or say, oh, yeah, I know he's here, you know, every day is a challenging day. But in our conversation, the, the interview I did with him, um, he was he was very enthusiastic and 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 very uh, realistic. Mm-hmm. He would have liked a bigger plan. And he at one time proposed as much as six trillion. We're talking about three point five trillion, so that's obviously not as big. Mm-hmm. But within that context, he is saying, "Look, I realize I've got to pull together a full Senate caucus. You know, we're going to do this potentially with reconciliation, and so you got to get all fifty Democrats on board. That's going to take negotiation. It isn't going to be easy." Kirsten Cinema is already asking some questions and mm-hmm. being challenging in some ways. But at, at the end of the day, yeah, Sanders is enthusiastic. And I think the thing that he's especially enthusiastic about, and I would say also that a lot of progressives are enthusiastic about, is that this is not some sort of radical wish list. What's included in this uh, budget plan, the $3.5 trillion plan, is a whole bunch of stuff that, that is really a big deal for people in their lives today, mm-hmm. like 
you know, getting vision, uh, hearing, and dental into Medicare. I mean, that's transformational. It's, it's, it's only a wish list because it's been so long, uh, you know, that, that people have wanted these things and haven't gotten them. These are all, you know, wildly popular things, and they're going to make them out to be some kind of, you know, crazy, uh, far-reaching. Now, they may be far-reaching, but that's just because the government hasn't actually done anything for poor and working-class people in this country, families in this country, for so many decades. At least yeah. as I see it. No, you're right, uh, and it's and it isn't just on. You know, there's there's a lot of money in here for uh, education, a mm-hmm. lot of money for pre-K education. Yeah. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of resources in this for uh, climate. Not as much as should be. Yeah. And I want to be very clear. I, I I think it's insufficient in many ways, but there's money there, and it's it's way more than we've talked about in the past. And so, I, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, what you're going to see is that progressives will point out where there are insufficiencies. Mm-hmm. They may complain, they may push in the House, especially to, to improve and in a reconciliation, some things mm-hmm. might even get better. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that, that by and large, uh, a lot of progressives recognize that we're talking about something huge here. Yeah. This is a major opportunity and also something necessary, i.e., if it doesn't happen, um, then the questioning of what it means to elect a Democratic administration and a Democratic Congress uh, will only become more serious and, and, and more concerning. And the other side of that is if it does happen, does it happen in time for people to notice by 2022, uh, even if they notice by 2024 and one or both houses have gone over to the Republicans? It may be too late. Uh, anyway, uh, John, actually, very quickly, uh, and uh, I, I know it's totally unfair, so I'm going to do it All anyway, right. and I'll hold you to it. Uh, is is this going to happen? Are both bills going to pass, yes or no? And like I say, I'll, I'll blame you later if you're wrong. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, I, I think that it looks like they're getting close to being able to pass the infrastructure bill, although I'm still, I've always been dubious, and uh-huh. I would not be shocked if... Uh, you know, you still lose a Republican at the critical point because that's all that it might take. Uh, but it does look like they're getting there. On the reconciliation, yes, I think they'll do something. I genuinely think they will. The question is not whether they will do something. I, I think the question is, will it be that $3.5 trillion figure or will that get whittled down? And the one final thing I'd say to keep an eye on always is how we pay for it. Will we tax the billionaires and the corporations or will they start to play some games with the funding mechanisms? Those are the two areas I'm going to keep an eye on. Thank you very much for keeping your eye on that. We'll have you back to talk about it, I suspect, in the not-too-distant future. John Nichols is Washington correspondent for The Nation, a contributing writer for The Progressive in these times, and the associate editor at uh, Wisconsin's Capital Times. You can find his work, of course, at thenation.com and on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising as the uprising continues. Thanks, John. Thank you. Okay, a quick break, and uh, I think we may have time uh, for this, Des. Okay. The, uh, a little bit more on governors like Ron DeSantis who want to, you know, kill their own residents. <laughs> there is, well, at least one who doesn't want to do that, eh, I think, and I think we deserve to give him some credit. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs>
Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Delta Dawn, what's that flower you have on? Could it be a faded rose from days gone by? Oh boy, yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Hopefully this is not the Delta Dawn. Hopefully this is the Delta Dusk. Yeah. I'm afraid it's the Delta Dawn. As we noted uh, yesterday, Joe Biden had a few comments for Governors Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas, uh, who are both supporting state laws and executive orders to block local jurisdictions from issuing masking mandates or, God forbid, vaccine mandates in their states. Even as the two states combined now have a huge number of the nation's total COVID infections and hospitalizations. The escalation of cases is particularly concentrated in states with low vaccination rates. Just two states, Florida and Texas, account for one third of all new COVID-19 cases in the entire country. Just two states. Look, we need leadership from everyone. If some governors aren't willing to do the right thing to beat this pandemic, then they should allow businesses and universities who want to do the right thing to be able to do it. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way. Yes. The people are trying to do the right thing. Yes. Use your power to save lives. Yes, please do. Also, since you call yourself conservatives, maybe you ought to believe in freedom for these companies and these counties to do what they want. And uh, since you're a conservative, you believe in small local government, let the counties make their own mandates. Now, uh, to be fair to Republican governors, because I'm just that nice of a guy... (laughs) Lord knows the party does not deserve it, no matter how not horrible one or two of the governors may turn out to be. Not all of them today apparently have a death wish for their constituents, like uh, Florida's DeSantis or Texas's Greg Abbott. And I think it's important to allow these guys uh, an off-ramp by lauding their efforts when they, on a rare occasion, actually do the right thing. Unlike the monstrous Governor DeSantis, who just last week, amid record cases and hospitalizations in Florida, just last week issued an executive order to bar schools in the state from requiring face coverings. Some governors, at least, are reversing their previous idiotic death cult positions and seeing their folly. Mere months after Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson signed a bill that banned local mask mandates across the state, the Republican has now asked lawmakers to pretty please reconsider that prohibition so that school districts might require children to don face coverings when they return to classrooms this fall. In March... When uh, COVID-19 cases were declining, Hutchinson allowed a statewide mask mandate to expire. Hey, at least he had one. But about a month later, he signed a bill that barred local officials from requiring masks. Now, at a press conference on Tuesday, he conceded that was a mistake. I signed it for those reasons that our cases were at a low point. Everything has changed now. 
And yes, in hindsight, I wish uh, that had not become law. Uh, but it is the law, and the only chance we have is either to amend it or uh, for the courts to uh, say that it has an unconstitutional uh, foundation. So he's hoping that his own law that he signed will be found unconstitutional. <laughs> yes, and I love that passive voice. I'm sad that law passed. He signed it. He signed it, right. Uh, and now he doesn't even know if he can get his fellow Republicans to correct it. He conceded that many of them are likely to oppose rolling back the law and allowing school districts to implement their own mask policies, uh, even though uh, there are skyrocketing infections across the state of Arkansas. He said in a statement, quote, I understand that some legislators are reluctant to allow school boards this freedom even in this limited way, but the exceptions for which I'm asking are true to the conservative principle that puts control in the hands of local government. What a concept. Right? <clears throat> so finally, a Republican is admitting what conservatism actually is or actually should be and admitting that he wasn't conservative at all. J just thank you, Governor. That was exactly the point <laughs> that I was making, I think, with uh, with John Nichols and, and sort of the same point that I have been making for God knows how long. Yep. <sighs> all right. That's it. I've had it. I'm getting out. Uh, thanks to our guest today, John Nichols of The Nation, to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. All of this being made possible by those of you listeners who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. To help us continue to do what we try to do, as frustrating as it may be, <laughs> every day, over your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. I will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.